Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For to bring some strange things for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Arapachite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Christianity came to the great city Athens when the Apostle Paul was basically there waiting for his friends to catch up with him from Macedonia. Silas and Timothy were still up in northern Greece. Paul had to escape Berea because there was persecution. People were after him there. So he sailed down and down and down until he got to Athens, and he was just waiting around in Athens for the rest of his missionary team to show up. And while he was waiting there, Christianity came to the great city of Athens. Now, it is said today in our culture, and you may have heard this before from others if you're a Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian and you're wondering this yourself, why can't Christians just leave people alone and let them believe and think what they would otherwise believe or think if they weren't confronted with Christianity? Why bother sharing your belief system? Why bother sharing your faith and your ways with other people? What's the point of it? Well, 
Paul's visit to Athens illustrates why Christianity cares so much about missions. And I don't just mean sending somebody to a faraway place overseas, to some tribal people. I mean, why do you, as a Christian, believe it's important that your faith should in some way have an impact on the people around you, where you work or your neighbor uh, or even your relatives, even your enemies? Why does Christianity care about that? You really see an illustration of it here when Paul goes to Athens. And what I hope you're going to see is that Christian missions cultivates a mind and a heart for the people that you're trying to reach. A mind for the people you're trying to reach and pray for and a heart for them as well. And that's what I want to talk about today. The mind of Christian missions, the heart of Christian mission. And then ultimately, I want to talk about the source of it all. So the mind, the heart, and the source of Christian missions. Now, Christian missions cultivates a mind for the people that you really hope to reach, that you want to positively impact. Athens' place in antiquity was so respected by the Romans that they gave Athens the status of a free city in their empire. That's what the Romans thought of Athens. I want, I want, I'm wondering if, um, if you think of it this way. Think about Washington, D.C. and New York City and how they relate to the American culture. Now go back to the Roman Empire. If Rome was the Western world's mind back in the day, Athens was like its heart. Athens was influential culturally, philosophy, teaching, morality, ethics, art, culture, architecture. Now think about this. I want to ask you a question. When you visited a world city, what was your first impression when you got there? What was your first impression of Washington, D.C.? What was your first impression of New York? What was your first impression of, I don't know, Paris or Budapest or Milan? I don't know. Some hands. If you visited some place, even if it's here in D.C. or New York, what was your first impression? Okay, so in New York City, Times Square was gaudy and blaring. Okay, that's a reaction. Yeah, Sarah. Interesting. You went to Athens, like recently, not 2,000 years ago, and, <laughs> and you thought it was very clean and the people were very friendly. Okay. So you got to Budapest, and literally the architecture took your breath away, but the people were very quiet and downcast. Interesting. I had the same reaction in Vienna, which isn't too far away. Other cities, what do you think? Yeah, Graham. Sorry, but New York and people unfriendly. <laughs> you got to New York, and people were unfriendly. Yeah, interesting. What else? Other, other cities, yeah.
So as an American, you show up in London and, and you're just impressed by the fact that you're walking around and you're, you're experiencing something that humans have, have experienced for over a thousand years, for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one more. Yeah. In the back. I didn't hear. What was the place? Guatemala City. Diesel fumes throughout the city. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you've flown in somewhere and you were just impressed by the smog <laughs> hanging over the... Yeah, okay. My general feeling whenever I go to any city that I've never been in before is I'm not comfortable unless I'm with somebody who knows where they're going. You're not comfortable in, in an unfamiliar city unless you're with someone who knows where they're going. Okay, okay. So being an outsider, it's helpful to have an insider with you who you trust. Great. Okay. That's interesting. I can't observe what's happening around me very well. Huh. I don't feel... So to better observe the uncomfortable surroundings, you like having a companion and a guide with you. Yeah. It's interesting because scholars point out when Paul got to Athens, he was alone. Paul, Paul he, was, he believed in team ministry. He went from place to place with a team. He knew these people very well, and they really they went through a lot together. Prison persecution, sickness, I mean, these, these, these people were tight. Uh, they, they, went, they made it through adversity, and, and he gets to Athens, and he's alone. And he was alone there for a while. Uh, thanks for, for those thoughts. It's kind of fun to talk about that. I want you to imagine showing up in a big world city you've never been to before, and imagine in, instead, of, instead of just admiring the sights and the smells and the sounds, Imagine observing the spirit of the city. Imagine observing and being impressed with what the city and its people are really about. Not just the way it looks and what the food tastes like, but, but you know, was the city about money? Were the people there really about money? Were they really about power? Was that city or were those people really about vanity? Was the city really about sex? What was the spirit of the city? Luke in his history tells us that when Paul came to Athens, he says that Paul was provoked within his spirit. And the word there for provoked, it means he was irritated. He was angry. He was distressed. And the reason, Luke tells us, is Athens was infested, not with cockroaches, but with idols. Uh, uh, an ancient satirist said of Athens that you could more easily find a god in Athens than you can find a man. The magnificent art, uh, the breathtaking architecture, Paul saw uh, as, as someone raised uh, as a Jew and now as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, Paul saw that this great architecture and this world-renowned art uh, really, the synthesis, the synthesis of the beginning of it all, even Western culture today, starts in Athens. And all that Paul could see is all the wonders that were all dedicated uh, to false gods, uh, which Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 would actually say were really just demons. So Paul responded to his... Paul gets irritated and frustrated and moved with it to passion within his spirit. And, and how does he respond? Does, does he get on social media and start ranting and raving about those terrible Athenians? 
Uh, no, he, he just starts talking to them. He, it tells us day after day, he just started talking to people and getting into conversations with them. And he does it in the, the marketplace, right? the agora, the agora. We don't have anything like that today in our society. The, the agora, it was, it was the, the cultural center, the business center. Uh, the political center of a town or city. The Agora was the centerpiece. The whole city, these ancient cities in the West, they were all built and designed around the marketplace. And we don't have anything like it. It would be to go to the Agora and to hang out there, it, it it would be like having our town hall and our courthouse and our supermarket and Starbucks and the city park all, all together in one place. And everybody just gets together and, and politics was done there. Uh, public trials were adjudicated in the Agora. Right? Um, goods were bought and sold. The philosophers were there. The teachers were there. The politicians were there. The artists were there. The prostitutes were there. Everybody was there. People just met and congregated and, and um, cohorted with one another. And that's where Paul was day after day. He was in the synagogues talking to the Jews, but he, it says he was in the marketplace talking with everybody. Now, he comes across, Luke tells us, some philosophers. And the two leading philosophies of the day were Stoicism and Epicureanism. And, and Paul runs into both of those, proponents of both of those philosophies. Uh, so not only does he see that, that the city is full of of idol worship, statues and temples. He also finds some philosophers. And now the epic, now this is a very unfair, gross generalization of these philosophies. Um, and I'm not qualified to go into great detail with them anyway, but I'm going to respectfully try and give you a brief taste of them. The Epicureans pursued a life of tranquility, right? Uh, Pleasure of the mind and of the body, not hedonism as you would think of it, but, but in a difficult life, in a hard world, and they didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed that there were gods maybe, but they were detached and removed from the world and from humanity. They didn't give a rip. So we were alone. The material world is all that exists. This life is all that exists. There's no afterlife. And life is painful and life is hard and life is dark. So protect yourself from pain. Protect yourself from discomfort If something feels good, pursue it. If something is painful, avoid it as much as you can. Those were the Epicureans. Since the material world in this life is all that there is, do what's pleasing and avoid what is not. Now, the Stoics were a bit different. The Stoics pursued virtue and and by virtue, happiness, the happy life. But to them, the way you pursued a virtuous and happy life was to get rid of emotions and to get rid of any sense of fear, and, and to get rid of all obstacles uh, that would get into your way of being in control of your emotions. Reason over emotion is what they taught. Again, because the world is a difficult place. They didn't believe in a personal God. Uh, they believed that the universe was one big life-giving force. Check that out, Star Wars fans. Um, uh, but that life and the world was very dark. And, and so since life is hard and since the universe is going to deal you a deck of cards, whether you like it or not, you have to avoid the emotions that make it more difficult and just grin and bear it and put your chin out and get through life. 
the best that you can. So they were different philosophies, but they're really two different responses to the same idea. That the material world is all that there is and there's no afterlife and there's no accountability to any God. We're on our own and we just got to get through the only life that we, know, that we can know. It, it really reminds me of something I came across of, uh, came across in the 19, in 1997 Washington Post interviewed George Clooney right as he was transitioning from his television career into his movie career. By the way, George Clooney has been in some of, some of my favorite movies. Not my favorite actor, but he's been in some of my favorite movies. And just talking about life and his career and his success, this is what Clooney said. I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't know if I believe in God. All I know is that as an individual, I won't allow this life, the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. Just kind of reminds me of the Stoics and the, Epicur the Epicureans. Clooney presents in his words and in his career an inconsistency. Because the very life that he is trying to not waste is in fact, by his own definition, meaningless. If there is no God and there's no afterlife and we're not preparing for something else, then the very life he's trying hard not to waste is in the end, according to his own definition, it's meaningless itself. There's an inconsistency in the way a lot of people live their lives. What they truly believe, they don't actually, <laughs> they actually don't live their lives in response to what they truly believe. And, and what Paul does in his message to the Athenians is he tries to point out some of their inconsistencies between their beliefs and their living. Paul was invited to the Areopagus. This literally meant Mars Hill. It's what Areopagus, it means Mars Hill, which, which was right out, it was in Athens, it was right outside of the Acropolis. And originally Mars Hill is where this, this court in a sense, met. They met on Mars Hill and they adjudicated. They adjudicated the morals of the city. They adjudicated the education and the philosophy of the city. It was a, a court in some sense. By this time, they were no longer meeting on Mars Hill. They were meeting in the marketplace, in the Agora. And they, and they invite Paul. I guess, you know, they regulate what's talked about in the city and they heard this stranger uh, talking about strange things, strange beliefs. And so uh, they invited him to come. It was like an informal inquiry. They wanted to understand what he was trying to say. It was like, so basically think of it this way. Paul was invited to speak at Harvard. Paul was invited to speak at Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, the, the philosophical and educational elite of the society wanted to hear more about what he was saying in the marketplace. And so... Paul says to them, he opens up, and I don't, I don't have time to analyze the entire sermon uh, today. But he speaks to them and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now Luke doesn't deliver the whole sermon. He gives us edited bits of it. Uh, so I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but John Stott, uh, I'm going to be quoting him 
uh, quite a bit in the next several minutes, John Stott gives a really helpful outline of Paul's address. And he basically says, Paul's making five points to the Areopagus. First, he says to them, now this is interesting because you know from looking through the book of Acts, when Paul showed up in a Jewish synagogue to talk about Christianity, he would open the Old Testament and he would prove to the Jews that the Christ in the Old Testament was actually the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. Paul takes a totally different approach with with these folks from Athens. He says, God is the creator of the universe. He points that out. And then he says, God is the sustainer of life. He also says, God's the ruler of all the nations. He sets people in their places. He sets nations in their places. He then says, God is the father of humanity. He finally says, God is the judge of humanity. John Stott says, that's basically Paul's approach. The five things he's really trying to say. Now, what Paul said If you spend time this week looking over Acts chapter 17, what Paul said corresponded directly to what he had learned about Athens and its people. He saw that Athens was devoted to idols. He spoke with philosophers who denied a personal God and any moral accountability to him. And... Yet their own poets, because he quotes two of their poets, he quotes Epimenides and he, he, he quotes Aratus, who himself was a Stoic. And he basically points out that their own poets believed in some sense in a, in a creator God, a personal creator God. So he quotes their own poets about God's existence. And yet he says, you have this one statue that points out your ignorance. So they're learned and they're educated and they're cultured. They're the leaders of the world. And yet their own statue points out that they're ignorant. And so their ignorance, Paul is saying, their ignorance leaves them culpable before a creator God who holds them accountable for their lives. And here's my point in bringing all of this up. Oh, hold on. Before I give you my point. Paul closes his message by saying, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul does get to the gospel, to the message of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and that it brings reconciliation between humanity and God by faith. He gets to it. He just goes a different route to get there. And here's my point in bringing this up. Paul did his homework before he opened his mouth. There you have it. God calls his ambassadors. And as we've been walking through the book of Acts, if you're a Christian here today, you have heard in many forms and in many ways over the last several months that as a Christian, you're an ambassador for Jesus. Wherever you are, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you study, you're Jesus' ambassador by faith if you follow him. God calls his ambassadors to study a culture in order to reach it. To study it 
in order to reach it. And I'm not speaking from an academic perspective, although that may be your case. I mean in very general, to know a culture, to invest in a person before you reach her or him. Now, for you, that may be as simple as, this, as Jonathan said early, earlier to the children. It may just be as simple as getting to know a person, really getting to know them, to understand them, before you strategically begin to impact their lives. For me, moving to Westminster as an outsider just less than three years ago, <clears throat> it meant visiting with our little launch team. It meant visiting local churches in the city of Westminster and in Carroll County for months, for months before we ever started congregating in our living room for times of worship on Sunday mornings. For me personally, it meant spending a year walking and praying through downtown Westminster, driving through Carroll County, meeting people, listening to people, studying, praying, before I felt that I had earned the right to open my mouth and preach to the people here or counsel them. And we waited over a year, and, and that was very, very, very difficult to wait. But we waited and we waited, and the reason in my heart that I waited with confidence was because of Acts chapter 17. Do your homework as a Christian, before you open your mouth. Bono from U2 sings this, these words, it's hard to listen while you preach. There's a time for preaching, but you can't listen when you start opening your mouth. So you had better listen before you open your mouth. So think of it that way, okay? Uh, missions, Christian, biblical Christian missions cultivates a mind for unreached people. But Christian missions also cultivates a heart for the people that we try to pray for, the people that we pray for, the people that we try to reach. The only reason Paul had a mind for the people of Athens, evidenced in his preaching to them, was because he had a heart for them in the first place. What does it say? He was, it says his spirit was provoked within him. Right? He was moved. Yes, irritated, frustrated, even alarmed, but he was moved. He was affected, passionately so. The apologist and evangelist Jerem Bars wrote a very helpful book called The Heart of Evangelism. And in The Heart of Evangelism, Jerem Bars offers three principles in how Christians should make the gospel known. And he he points to Acts chapter 17 and what Paul did there and how Paul spoke there to illustrate his points. He says he, he shares three basic principles. The first is you show people respect. And you see Paul do that. In addition to showing people respect, you prayerfully build bridges for the gospel. Building bridges for the gospel, if you're a Christian, it means finding God's truth in the other person's story and what they've gone through, and what they say, and what they believe. They're, they live in God's world. There are going to be traces and hints of God's truth in what they say or what they believe. And Paul found it in those old poets who said something about a God being their creator, being the sustainer of their lives. And Paul found that bridge, and he built on that bridge to sharing the gospel with them. Finally, not only showing them respect, building bridges in their worldview to the gospel, but also understanding what others believe was, is critical. If you're a community group leader 
and you know that your, your community group has it on their heart to be an, an, an encouraging, positive, gentle, respectful witness to others in their lives, that is a great book to read as a group. Um, a guy that grew up in Westminster no longer lives here. He's, he's down in Virginia. His name is Alan Dayhoff. He went to Westminster High School. He wrote a book called Church in a Blues Bar. Uh, I'm not suggesting this for myself or for us, but, but he left, as a pastor, he left local church ministry, as, as you would understand it, you know, church office, meeting with congregants every week. And, and he went out in, into the secular community, and he started hanging out in a rough blues bar. He just went to the places that, you know, sometimes you feel uncomfortable going. And he just went and went back and went back and went back and befriended these people in the blues bar and got to know know them so well that many of them who were not Christians and did not share his faith still started calling them their pastor. Because he was the only pastor they knew. And, And they knew him because he hung out where they hung out. And he wrote a book describing his mission to people in a blues bar. And I think to really reach the post-Christian culture in America, Christians and churches have to start getting creative, no less biblical, but getting creative with how they spend their time and how their churches are designed and what their pastors and leaders and missionaries and evangelists do with their time if we're going to reach a changing society. Um, So Paul earned a hearing in Athens, he earned a hearing because he diligently and passionately sought to know the people there. So if you're a Christian, God calls you to develop a mind and a heart for the people you're praying for. I think that, I think that you know, and Ed talked about this before. I think that we want God to give himself to people. If you're a Christian and you're praying for somebody, you you naturally want God to give himself to that person. But sometimes we don't want to give ourselves to them. We pray, God, give yourself to that person, but, but then reluctantly we don't want to give ourselves. It's one thing to notice that somebody's spiritually needy. It's one thing to look at a family, your relatives, or a neighborhood or a community. Or a people group, like a subculture. Or an ethnicity. It's one thing to look at a group of people or an individual and say they're spiritually needy. I'm going to start praying for them. It's another thing to be incarnational with that person or that group of people. Here's what I mean by incarnational. I mean entering into their experience. In some way. In some way. Entering into their experience so you can see them. You can understand them from their own perspective to really understand their story, to start contemplating and thinking about and reflecting on their questions, their struggles, their objections to begin to anticipate their needs, what they're going to say, what they're going to ask for, what they're going to object to, to begin to sympathize with shared aspects of their own depravity. You see how they're depraved, and you see it looks somewhat like your own depravity. You see how what they're afraid of, and you see, oh, I'm afraid of some of the same things. Uh, 
about. You see what, what they grieve over, what they're sad about, how they've been hurt in life. And you start to go, I've been hurt in some of the same ways. I may be, I may be uh, religiously very different or politically very different or culturally very different than this person. But I discover they've been hurt in some of the same ways that I've been hurt. And so maybe I, maybe I don't see that on paper. I have a lot in common with the LGBTQ community. And yet I find as I hear their stories that I've been alienated before by people who were supposed to take care of me. You look at people, you look at a group of people, and if you get to know them, you will start to see common threads in the human experience that you all share together. And really, that is what Paul was doing when he was spending time in Athens. He was building bridges by getting to know them. Are you willing to give yourself to a person incarnationally? Are we willing as a church to give ourselves, in a sense, to the surrounding town and to our culture? If not, then maybe we have some idle infestations of our own. Because I think the very thing that Paul was trying to address in Athens, it doesn't elude us, friends. Because the irreligious and the religious alike all struggle with idolatry, the Bible says. And your idolatry, you, you may not be offering sacrifices up to Athena or to Zeus, um, but you may be consumed with your own privacy or your own leisure or your own time and your money to such a degree that you're not willing to give yourself to another person or to another group of people. And those things, friends, perhaps, have truly become the altars of your life where you give the most of your energy and passion and love and heart and money and time to those things. John Stott, again, he, he point, John Stott in his commentary on this chapter, he points out how Paul is, is taking the concept of idolatry and turning it on its head. He's helping the Athenians see whether you're atheistic and you don't believe there's a life after death or there's no God, or whether you're super religious and you bow down and worship to every stone or moving creature. Uh, regardless of where you're coming from, we all have some form of idolatry. And John Stott says, this is what idolatry does. In brief, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between our creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. Stott went on to say, there's no logic in idolatry. It's a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. And it leads to Paul's last point. And, and what was Paul's last point to the people on Mars Hill? The ignorance that they had of the one true God was leaving them culpable before him. Our ignorance. But here's the thing. If you read Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote it. Romans chapter 1 points out that what we actually do as human beings is we take this beautiful thing called the glory of God, our creator's glory and beauty and prominence in the universe and in our lives, and we exchange it. We trade it for something that's a lie, and we begin to give glory, weight, love, worship 
to everything else, every moving creature, every person, anything but the one who created us. So in the end, ignorance is the reason we're culpable for ignorance before a holy God who created us is not just because we don't know anything. It's because we suppress what we know. Paul says in Romans 1 that people suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness and begin to worship anything and everything but their creator who alone deserves glory and their, and their praise. And here's really the, this is the source of all Christian missions. If you're a Christian, this is the source of all the good that you can do as an ambassador of Christ in your life. The source of all Christian missions is the glory of God. That's where it all comes from. To have a mind for the people you're trying to reach and pray for, to have a heart for them, it all comes from having an understanding of God's glory and having a passion that God is honored in the world and God is glorified, honored in your life. John Stott also said, we do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. So let's talk about how Paul felt. Maybe this is nagging you. Why was he provoked? Why was he upset when he walked around in Athens? And by the way, you know, are you asking what is with the God of the Bible? You know, Paul is so upset that people aren't worshiping the one true God. Why does he have to be worshiped? Why does the God of the Bible, people say this, why does the God of the Bible have to be loved and admired and worshiped over everything else? He just seems like a huge egomaniac. Is that true? Why does God need to be worshiped and loved? He's not an egomaniac. Look at it this way. Bible, uh, the Bible calls God a jealous God. Maybe that's where some of the frustration comes from. This idea that he's an egomaniac because he calls himself a jealous God. Um, well, look at it this way. Uh, Psalm 106 says uh, that the people of Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. He was a false god. Uh, they, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and they ate sacrifices offered to the dead. And listen to this. It's the same Greek word in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. Same word as Paul getting frustrated. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. And John Stott at this point addresses the problem this way. He goes, think of a marriage. Think of a good marriage. Um, a, A husband and wife who love one another should be jealous for one another's love so that if a third partner tries to invade the marriage relationship, they should both be pretty upset. What kind of a husband would you think I was if another man tried to earn my wife's affection? You would say I would be a good husband if I I was intolerant of another man getting into my marriage. I would be jealous for my wife's love and affection. You would say you're being a good husband. That's because you love her, because you're devoted to her. And, And what God is saying in the Bible is the same thing. He weds himself to his creation. He gives himself in love to his creation, to his people. And when anything takes glory away from God, God sees it as an intrusion into the relationship. So it is not some vain jealousy that the God of the Bible is guilty of. No, it's, it's, a, it's a devoted passion for the people that he's created. 
So that he said in Isaiah chapter 42, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And that's why Paul was so distressed when he came to Athens and he saw thousands and thousands of people, the leaders of the world in a sense, he saw them all perishing in ignorance because they were worshiping anything and everything but their own creator. Idols had no right for such prominence in the human heart. Neither in yours or mine, friends. That's what bothered Paul much. It was the honor of the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's deepest passion. His love for Jesus, his honor and devotion to Jesus. That's really what gave him a a mission for the people of Athens. It gave him a heart for them. And that heart for them allowed him to cultivate a mind for those people so that he understood them and knew how to interact with them and communicate with them. And then he earned his way into, the, into their discussions. He earned a hearing with the people of Athens because he had already developed a mind for them because he had a heart for them. And he had a heart for them because he had a passion for the glory of God in the world and in his life. Do you not have that passion for God? If you don't, I want you to think about Jesus, Jesus Christ. Because what you see in Paul is, is, just, is just a shadow of what Jesus Christ did. Jesus had a mind for us. He became a human being. He entered into the human experience in space and time, our creator. He entered into our experience and he saw the world and life and sickness and suffering and grief and death. From our point of view. He saw it all from our point of view. And why did he develop a mind for us? Because he had a heart for us. John 3 says God loved the world. Which is why he sent his son to us. Because he had a heart for us. And Jesus had a heart for you. Jesus wept. If you read the gospels. It says at one point in his ministry. He looked out over Jerusalem. And he wept for the city. What he saw happening in that city, the corruption, the pride, the idolatry, the ego, the injustice, the lies. He wept over that city. It moved him like Athens moved Paul. And the reason Jesus had a mind for you and a heart for you is because more than anything, Jesus had a passion to glorify his heavenly father. That's what kept Jesus going. He said it was like food for him. That's what kept him going. That's what... That's what allowed Jesus to endure the cross. He had a passion for his father's glory that was unstoppable. He was the true worshiper, the only true worshiper. We're all idolaters, but not Jesus. That's the one way he's different from us. He's not ignorant and he doesn't suppress the truth. And he never sinned, although he was tested and tempted just like us in every way. He never sinned. And that's why he could stand on that cross in your place. Because he was the true worshiper, passionate about his heavenly father. And so now consider Jesus as doing all of that for you, having a mind for you, having a heart for you, because he was passionate about his heavenly father's glory. Now you ask God for a passion for his own glory. You ask God to give you a heart for people that will allow you to cultivate a mind for them so that you will earn a hearing in their lives because they see they see that you understand them so 
Christian missions, we, we, we looked at the birth of Christian missions several weeks ago when the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out amongst the Gentiles. Well, now we're looking at the heart of missions and the mind of missions. Christian missions gives you that. It gives you a heart and a mind for the people you're praying for and the people you're trying to reach. And listen, if you're not following Jesus, my prayer and our prayer as a church is that God will give us a heart for you and a mind for you if you would respectfully allow us the time to invest in your life. So a passion for the glory of God will give you a mission for people. And a heart for those people will cultivate a mind for them. And if God allows, he'll give you a hearing in their presence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may it be so that we love you so much and are so impressed with your heart for us and your mind for us and your devotion to your heavenly father that we would be devoted to you and develop a passion for this town and its people. And that when we walk the streets and drive through the neighborhoods and out in the country roads, that you would give us a sense of what this place is all about. What is the spirit of this place? And move us, Father. Move us with emotion and passion and urgency and grief and expectation and hope for this place. That you would change it through us. In your name, amen.